Australians have collectively reached for the remote and turned down the volume on Canberra's noise. This is it. This is as thick as it gets. You're stark raving mad. Got anyone asking questions here? What is happening to mainstream media? You are fake news. Well, I think sometimes we can disagree with the facts. I have never had more fun in my life. This is Represent. 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 Represent on Nation. Good afternoon, you're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. I'm Zizi. I'm Oscar. I'm Nikki. I'm Maggie. On today's show, we'll be doing a quick wrap-up of the adventures of Donald Trump as we look at the G7 summit and, of course, the historic meeting in Singapore with North Korea's Kim Jong-un. We'll also be turning to domestic news with an analysis of what's been happening in Australian politics. We'll be looking at the changes in the Senate as One Nation's Brian Burson resigns and Larissa Waters sets to come back in as the first person to return after a Section 44 stumble. And we'll also be taking a quick look at the um, outcomes of the Federal Liberal Party Council meeting, which saw some quite surprising announcements and votes. Uh, And finally, we'll be looking at the investigation to Afghanistan and the potential war crimes that Australian soldiers may have committed during our stint there. Um, And of course, we'll be having a look at Head to Head, our favourite segment, and we'll be having a look at all the birthday celebrations that President Donald Trump um, enjoyed and how his family celebrated the... um, president's big day so last week we talked about the north korean the up, the north korean summit and the g7 summit so both of those have concluded this week with really some quite interesting results so the um g7 kind of ended in fire and fury after donald trump instructed the uh, u.s trade representative to not sign the joint communique which promised better prosperity and so trump tweeted out numerous things uh, one of which was uh, PM Dustin Trudeau of Canada acted so weak and mild during our G7 meetings only to give it the news conference after I left saying US tariffs were kind of insulting and he will not be pushed around. Very dishonest and weak. Our tariffs are in response to to his one, 170% on dairy. Uh, that was Trump on Twitter. And so it's really seen some quite interesting results in terms of the G7 summit, and I think Trump is heading to Canada now to, I don't know, hopefully resolve the debacle. So, what do you all think? I mean, it was a pretty dramatic end to what is usually quite a, um, I guess, standard diplomatic meeting between the world's largest economies. It was always kind of, um, it was definitely uh, predicted that this would have huge amounts of tensions right before uh, the G7 began. Trump also announced um, tariffs against uh, major European allies as well as Canada um, and he's kind of ended the week with even more tariffs Um, and I think that there is this great divergence between um, the US under Donald Trump and I guess the rest of the European allies, um, most notably Angela Merkel and um, Macron, who are pursuing much more like standard um, uh, economic policies. And this is what this whole summit is about, um, the future of economic trade and development. Uh, Trump has kind of only just recently kind of come up with his own unique twist saying that the G7 summit went really well, uh, posting various photos uh, to Twitter, which kind of shows everyone smiling 
Miley was there, but this is, you know, before. Well, of course, this comes after that iconic photo, which I'm sure you've all seen, of what looks like Merkel um, giving a bit of a standoff with Donald Trump with his arms crossed and looking very sullen. Um, People compared it to Donald Trump throwing a bit of a um, child's temper tantrum, and that's what it looked like. Um... You know, this this image has kind of been memed <laughs> a bit with people photoshopping, you know, like toddler outfits onto Donald Trump and making it seem like, you know, he was definitely an outsider in the G7 meeting. Um, so, yeah, there's been no real agreement on the uh, tariff trade war situation that is sort of developing. Uh, so moving on... Um, the US-North Korean summit concluded in you know, quite a soft way. Definitely some progress there. Uh, we have sort of seen... Progress depending on who you talk yeah. to, of course. <laughs> but, I mean, there's the joint communique, but, I mean, there, there has been things like this before, like under Bill Clinton uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, but there was also a lot of controversy with Trump uh, saluting a, fi- a three-star North Korean general. Do you think that will have negative implications for the summit with North Korea, or...? Um, I think... uh, Okay, so we could look at what the joint communique says in one aspect, and then there's the other aspect of how does this benefit uh, a propaganda unit within North Korea. And, frankly, North Korea comes out looking very positively. I mean, we have to remember that this is a struggling economy and a rogue state that has been isolated since the Korean War in the 50s. Um, They've had massively stunted economic output. They're a weak nation with a strong military based off the fact that their whole economy is, you know, kind of taken into the military complex. Um, This isn't that strong a nation in the long term. And yet you have images of Kim Jong-un, a 27-year-old or something, standing next to the President of the United States, um, his generals being saluted by the leader of the free world. Um, This is a huge propaganda win for those in North Korea who want to maintain the regime and want to give North Korea legitimacy in its international platform. Mm, Absolutely. Like, you can see... I feel like Donald Trump has really tried to go with the image that, you know, he's the one creating so much change and bringing peace to the world through this sort of meeting, when in fact, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, the sort of what was supposedly achieved in this first meeting wasn't that significant. It was just sort of reiterating things that North Korea and South Korea have already agreed upon, such as the complete denuclearization well, it's of not the even, Korean Peninsula. Yeah, I mean, you're certainly right, but it's not even that um, this promise has already been made with their South Korean allies. It's the fact that North Korea has already made these promises before and there were no concrete terms put on them. Mm, exactly. uh, Bill Clinton secured an agreement that there would be complete denuclearization. Obviously, that didn't occur. George W. Bush got the same promise and nothing occurred. And now President Donald Trump has got a vague promise for complete denuclearization, something that's been on the table for a very long time. And North Korea shows no willingness to pursue it. I mean, this wasn't complete, verifiable, um, planned and timetable denuclearization. This was some vague, like abstract promise of sometime in the future we'll get rid of our nuclear weapons Mm. I think it's to do with like I suppose it's a lot up to interpretation right now about how cynical 
we want to be a- about this because on one hand you can say oh like and, and I'm sure it's a narrative Donald Trump wants us to see in terms of like look at how amazing I am I'm the first one that managed to bring North Korea to the table Bill Clinton couldn't do that back in the day but on the other hand like you were saying earlier Zizi North Korea has through this meeting sort of established themselves as someone worthy to be on the same table as you know America supposedly the leader of the free world and there, and I believe like Donald Trump has made several statements that people around the world have been finding a bit problematic, such as um, you know, saying that there's been other bad people in the world as well when um, he was pressed to condemn sort of the human rights violations happening in North Korea. And it's just like, if it really is as much of a win as we thought it would be building up to the summit. I mean, even after the summit, there was President Donald Trump who would talk to reporters and talk about how great a guy Kim Jong-un is, how charming he was, or I think he used the word funny. And, like, these are very strange um, adjectives to be using against someone who's leading a brutal regime that's overseeing mass crimes against humanity, as documented by um, Australian High Court judge and investigator into potential human human rights abuses into in North Korea, um, Kirby? Um, I think this is also uh, interesting because um, Trump also stated that Americans should sit up to attention like North Koreans, uh, jokingly, but that has, you know, kind of drawn uh, you know, uh, controversy for, you know, Trump kind of being willing to, uh, I guess, draw analogies with... Yeah. In this way, he's also said things like the North Korean people love him. His people applaud when he comes into a room, like uh, proudly celebrating what is both a propaganda unit and a symbol of the authoritarianism of North Korea. I think it's a very worrying thing to have such positive sentiments about yeah. North Korea. I was really excited for the summit um, because I naively thought we would get more concrete goals, um, or at least not have the president of the United States so positively endorse what will become propaganda for North Korea. Um, I think it's also quite interesting because, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe future presidents, uh, I mean, past presidents have, um, you know, have, you know, received offers but have refused because of human rights grounds and um, and also, you know, to try and deal it, to try and not make the Kim regime look legitimate. But, you know, Trump has kind of, you know, and I think it is, does go to more concern that this this summit has also had no human rights aspects for the people in North Korea who are being repressed by the Kim regime. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not surprised that human rights abuses aren't discussed in an attempt to denuclearize and, like, relieve tensions. Um, it is disappointing, obviously. I think it's, like you said, it's it's very typical of this president to take something that... previous presidents refused to do on the basis of moral or international diplomatic grounds like meet with an authoritarian leader and turn that into an achievement by reversing it. He is the first one to move the capital of Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. He is the first one to meet with Kim Jong-un. Like These moves are controversial and have been avoided by past presidents and he's turning, reversing that uh, international diplomatic norm as an achievement. It's an interesting pattern. Yeah. Um, so, just curious as to what you guys think. Uh, what what will come out of... What's next out of this? 
I feel like I am still a little bit hopeful just because there is so much international attention and pressure and as much like yeah maybe like on one hand like am I being so naive about this still but on the other hand hopefully with the pressure going on that even if it is sort of on the surface level perhaps North Korea um, blowing up certain nuclear you know testing sites just for show and still doing whatever that they want to do underground or away from I suppose what the West can see there is hopefully at least going to be a lot more peace on the surface and we won't have what we had in the past where there was I believe a lot of tension I believe around January this year in South Korea about whether they were going to potentially be attacked um, and things like that so without that sort of escalation of tension I believe at least on that front it'll be a little bit better but I'm not sure about working towards a better future in general in terms of denuclearization and better human rights what about what about you guys what do you think I think um, the summer will perhaps bring a more likely to have North Korea have more relations with other countries I think the summer itself has not like um, improved much in terms of the nuclearization promise and nuclearization process and it has just kind of reiterated what has been said before about North Korea but I think it has brought North Korea to like the table and has encouraged diplomacy with other countries. I'm going to uh, agree with you guys um, in terms of while I didn't was very negative about how the summit proceeded in what I view as, you know, just fodder for the North Korean propaganda unit. It, it is good that North Korea is going to these peace meetings, that they are communicating, and there is at least some discussion um, exactly, yeah. about, you know, calming tensions on the border. I think what is more and a more important meeting would be discussions with South Korea, which is obviously more under threat. However... Um, and I think we have not mentioned this yet, uh, Donald Trump sacrificed a really big thing in these negotiations by promising that America would not uh, participate in any war games in South Korea. Um, this is quite worrying because it symbols to, um, I guess, our um, military allies in the region that maybe America isn't as committed to the region and they aren't as committed to stopping North Korea if there is an event of an attack that doesn't directly threat the United States. Um, it does symbolize that America is withdrawing and that it doesn't see its security alliances as important. Uh, that being said, um, Donald Trump's uh, style of international diplomacy means that this is still up for negotiation, weirdly. Like, his because his promises mean very little, um, he has the potential to put these war games back on the table very easily in a way that past uh, US governments may not have been able to do without losing face. Um, I think Donald, since these war games were only meant to happen next year, it would be very easy for him to call them on if North Korea did seem to be undermining their promises. Uh, we, In a weird way, Donald Trump allows the US to be as fickle as North Korea when it comes to these negotiations so things are constantly in play and maybe that means that these negotiations continue and we'll see more concrete goals. Mm, certainly more conversation and discussion to have on that in the future uh, but of course let us know what you think. Do you think that the summit is 
going to have significant impact in the future, let us know by sending us a tweet to at SinRepresent or follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash SinRepresent and send us a message through there. And yes, we are going to be moving on to OzPol. We have quite a few different segments we want to cover, but first of all, we're going to the good old section 44. Larissa Waters is the first senator who is actually returning to government to the government um who was she was one of the very first casualties to the section 44 sort of citizenship scandal and um what is happening in this case is that she will be replacing andrew barlett who was actually the person that replaced her in the beginning if that makes sense um, when she was talking about it a little bit with the media she said that her year away from the parliament has really given her more perspective on her job and I suppose her community and what will be happening is Barlett will be standing down as a Green Senator for Queensland in August. What do you guys think? Um, I think uh, after the whole Section 44 debacle, especially because it's been quite concentrated with Senators, um, a lot of uh, parties have been asking the replacements to resign after the, the member had who had been in violation of Section 44 sorted out their citizenship um, and this is the first one to actually organise the replacement to step down. Um, a lot of people have been, uh, I, I remember One Nation when they lost Malcolm Roberts, the replacement was asked to step down and he immediately left the party and continued in the seat. So this is kind of an achievement of minor parties being able to actually maintain control over their members, um, which is pro- probably a good sign. Um, and it's a big win for the Greens because Larissa Waters is a very popular um, Greens uh, politician. She um, kind of made international headlines when she was the first woman to breastfeed in our national parliament um, after having her child um, and was generally seen as quite a a popular figure Um, and there are of course speculations that she could potentially be a leader of the party sometime in the future or at least she's being seen as a potential uh, candidate uh, when or if the Greens decide to move on to new leadership. Hmm, awesome. It's really exciting, well not exciting, but I, when I was researching this story, I didn't realise that it's been almost a year since she's left and it's like, I cannot believe this whole story has dragged on for a year. <laughs> and we're still losing parliamentarians to this day. Um, yeah, I, I believe she was one of the second members to be knocked out, uh, the first also being a Green, uh, a Greens uh, senator, um, whose name is escaping me at the moment. But yeah, it, it's it has quite devastated minor parties, but this is kind of the first sign that they're actually getting their members in line, they're making sure that, you know, they are coming back into politics, they are re-entering um, kind of uh, the normal patterns of behaviour, and this is one of the few parties that's actually managed to get one of the interim members to step down and allow mm. for, I guess, a politician that the Australian public actually voted for. Hmm. Moving on to the next story, we're going to be covering some of the suggestions that have come out of the Liberal Party's annual federal council that happened with more than 100 MPs attending in Sydney just a little while ago. And two of the major things that have come out is that the Liberal Party members have voted to privatise the ABC and also to follow the US in moving the Australian embassy to Jerusalem 
Jerusalem. So a little bit more about that. Basically, in terms of moving to Jerusalem, um, although it was voted for 43 votes to 37, um, and that happened despite Foreign Minister Julie Bishop saying that that probably wasn't the best idea at the moment. Um, she expressed that she understood this sentiment completely, but I quote, Jerusalem is a final status issue and we have maintained that position for decades. That's what she said. So, of course, these votes are non-binding, but it sort of does give insight into what the internal Liberal Party believes and where sort of the differences are between the more conservative end and the more moderate end. So another side of that, as we mentioned, is privatisation of the ABC. The vote was specifically for full privatisation except for services in regional areas. And once again, the communications minister, Mitch Fifield, made it clear that that's not something that he um, wants to happen. But I suppose it is interesting that these messages are being sent about what I suppose internal party members versus MPs are thinking. Yeah, I mean, it does kind of show a little bit of a divide within the Liberal Party um, uh, between the government and uh, the Liberal voter support base or even just the Liberal Party leadership. Uh, And I think it's going to be interesting to see how or if this develops at all. I think it's important to note that potentially... um, the Liberal Party, um, at least the membership base, is very different from the Liberal Party voters. Um, so the membership base are people who are paid members of the Liberal Party who have a strong belief and conviction in the political... Um, like, what policies are pushed forward by their representatives. However, the voting public, I'm not sure, are committed to uh, changes to the ABC or perhaps even moving the embassy to Tel Aviv, although I, I wouldn't... I know, I know the ABC is widely popular among the community, even among Liberal Party voters. Um, I'm not sure if we have polling about the move to Tel Aviv because it's quite a niche issue. Um, I'm not sure it shows distance between voters and the government, but it definitely is a problem that the membership base is very different from the political class. I feel like that's a distinction we should look at. Mm. And I suppose something else I want to follow up on, problem. What extent do you think this will actually be, I guess, an issue for the government in terms of being elected again? Because you mentioned you don't really think that it is members of the public that hold this opinion. Do you think that the members of the public will probably support the more moderate side of the Liberal Party? Just in um, Oh. I know, it's a tough one. (laughs) Um, I think this goes to a very complex issue of voter behaviour and I I don't know if we have um, the ability to analyse how voters work, but I do believe that the motions being put forward by a membership base, which we should remember party membership has been declining over years, so we're getting a much more concentrated group of people who are invested in these policies, um... And they may represent over only a small subset of the Australian public. Um, what I think is interesting, um, and it doesn't quite relate to your question, but when the Liberal Party decides to go against their membership base, it's probably less symptomatic of a huge shift between the Liberal Party moderates and conservatives than perhaps if you look at when the Labour Party 
and their caucus meetings differ from their federal party politics because the Labour Party has a greater commitment in terms of its um, history and its governance structures to follow the edicts of its membership base and its caucus meetings to actually push those policies through in the parliament. However, the Liberal Party always has had a bit of a tenuous link with its membership base. The membership base obviously informs the politics that it wants to pursue, but it's not necessarily bound by the decisions made. Um, Mm. So, yeah, I think it's quite complex. Um, It does perhaps indicate that there is a growing conservatism within the membership base. Um, And it's interesting to note, especially within the young Liberal base, because they were the ones who... um, the initial uh, bid for the privatisation of the Australian, uh, the ABC, was pushed by the Young Liberals um, as opposed to, um, you know, just a branch um, proposal. Mm, absolutely. So now moving on to our third and final issue, and this is a bit of a follow-up as we did cover this, I believe, last week. One Nation, Brian Burston and the sort of shall we say, conflict that he has had with Pauline Hanson and him adamantly saying that he wasn't going to leave the party unless she, you know, forced him out somehow. Well, turns out this week, yeah. we can tell you, he's quit and now he's <laughs> sitting as an independent. We have a bit of a clip here to play for you about some of the things he's said. Um, she's saying she has no longer the confidence that I will... Um I agree with every single decision she makes as um, Senator, uh, President for Life. Um, I thought I joined One Nation as a democratic political party, not a dictatorship. I'm very disappointed with that letter. However, I shall inform over the radio to Senator Hanson that I will not be vacating my uh, Senate position in the House and I shall not be resigning for One Nation if she wants to... Yes, so that was a clip from a bit earlier of him saying that he's not going to leave, but still, here he is. Um, I believe another statement that he's made since then that wasn't part of that clip is that One Nation should be called Gone Nation. (laughs) What do you guys think of this story's new developments? Well, I think it's um, obviously quite a bitter split between um, One Nation. Um, uh, This is, of course, uh, in a long history of One Nation kind of splitting off. uh, After Malcolm Roberts was wrapped up in the Section 44 scandal, he, of course, had to resign and immediately was replaced by Fraser Anning, who we mentioned before, almost immediately uh, left the party. Um, He accused uh, Senator Hansen of uh, verbally abusing him and calling on him to resign when he entered the parliament. Um, and he ended up joining Bob Catter's Australia's party. Um, there's also been um, another case where uh, Mr Cullerton had to leave the party at the end of 2016 after he was kicked out of the Senate because of bankruptcy case. So there's obvious indications that One Nation is unable to keep its membership in line. Um, they're not able to keep their parliamentarians in the party itself. Um, and I think this symbolises a real problem with... Um, the leadership style of Pauline Hanson in her party, because these aren't ideological disputes, these aren't breaks about policy per se, it does seem to be problems of personality. Hmm. And I think that does tend to occur on these very like personality-based leaders. Um, if you remember back to um, Clive Palmer, he was also unable to keep his party together um, 
based off the fact that he expected his members to just be representatives of him and his political ideology. And he didn't really accept political pluralism or debate within his party. And that quickly splintered off into, you know, the Jackie Lavie network and... um, I think he only had one other senator. Um, but yeah, there was definitely splintering, and we're seeing the same with Pauline Hanson and her revival of One Nation. Mm, and looking back in the whole history of One Nation, um, beyond those cases as you already mentioned of people quitting or like having to leave for one reason or another, um, a graphics by The Guardian shows that 19 people have quit the party or has been expelled, which is quite a significant amount of people for, I suppose, how many people actually goes into the Senate from uh, the One Nation Party. And it's, like you were saying, I think it is a lot to do with Pauline Hansen and how she, I suppose, rules the party. And that's something that certainly is reflected by the statements that Burson has been making about how it is a dictatorship and he feels like it's, you know, part of the reason or major, one of the major reasons why he left. And some of the conversation that's been happening since he's left is about how much power that actually takes away from Pauline Hanson and One Nation as sort of like a voting block to, you know, block certain... um you know, block certain sort of things going through or, you know, as sort of having that leverage because that only leaves Pauline Hanson and one other person. And I believe that has the same amount of influence as a centre alliance and a number of, like, crossbenchers have the ability to form voting alliances of the same amount of people. Do you think that this has had a big impact on One Nation's power in the Senate? Um, I think uh, Pauline Hanson has definitely lost the ability to really push her policies. Uh, When she initially got in, a lot of um, more left-wing people were very worried that she would have the ability to kind of drag the Liberal Party further to the right um, by her ability to uh, block things in the Senate. Um, And certainly if we think back to maybe like last year when the media law reforms were being pushed through, she had a lot of sway in kind of calling into question funding models for the ABC, which she's been pushing for quite a long time, um, and other One Nation policies, which she was looking for. Um, I think (laughs) the Liberal Party has generally just played a waiting game with this Senate. Um, They've definitely seen a lot of traditional kind of uh, voting blocks kind of dissolve and uh, turn into more um, smaller, uh, what's it called, Um, card trading? (laughs) I can't remember what the phrase is, but it's basically like instead of having to negotiate a big deal with um, one representative who brings across four votes, they can make a lot of smaller deals with people who may have more localised or smaller scale policies that they want to push through. Um, I think this gives uh, the Liberal government... it, It could give them a lot more advantage in making smaller sacrifices, but it might mean that Senate negotiations take longer because instead of dealing with one party, you're dealing with five individuals or however many. Mm. And I suppose another thing to end this on is do you think this is going to have impact on Pauline Hanson or One Nation's general popularity, like this string of people leaving? Do you think it's going to have long-term effects on like the popularity of the party or do you think is her personality is enough to keep it going i think it might have a negative impact on the um popularity of the party because if 
people kind of see there's like a destabilization of the party and how their unity they might not feel like that party is a good representation representation of their views even though they um you know follow by Pauline Hansen's kind of policy so i think that it might have a negative po- um impact but if people are kind of like true Pauline Hansen supporters i feel like you know might not have any impact at all i mean i think i think like unit the the concept of division and unity have always had a you know an important part in modern uh, Australian politics in determining things because we saw with um, Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard, you know, there was the um, Liberal Party played on the uh, played on played on the idea that there was a lot of instability within the Labor Party and you know fractured and all of that. I mean, I don't know how much that really affected, but it was certainly played on a lot. I think that it also depends on whether or not we consider. When the Liberal Party exploited the divisions in the Labour Party, they were condemning their ability to govern as a fractured party. I don't know if One Nation voters are looking to Pauline Hanson to lead the nation so much as they're voting for her party to destabilise the political status quo. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's a lot of talk about One Nation as this uh, counter-revolutionary party, which kind of shows that you have lost trust in the major parties and I don't know if people voting for her mind that the party is as fractured or, or maybe not her party specifically, but um, ideologies and parties that represent that ideology. I think people will continue to vote for them as the counter-revolutionary force to the major parties. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how she got into power. People being like, I don't believe Labour represents us. I don't believe the Liberals represent us. I want someone different. And they turn to her as this, like third candidate that represented something that they believed in Mm. um it would be because they're not voting for her to become the next prime minister they're voting for her to be a voice in parliament that destabilizes what is seen as like a status quo um i think it's also i mean i think it's also gonna be interesting to see whether in the next election whether the um electorate kind of uh whether the electorate kind of throws these one nation defectors out or whether uh, whether, you know, they're kept in. And I know some of them have got six years tenure. I don't, can't name which one, but it's going to be interesting to see whether the electorate is voting for one, is voting for these candidates or whether they're voting for one nation. We saw the success of individual candidates after I, I, I mentioned the Clive Palmer party. Obviously, we had Jackie Lambie, who was re-elected, because she kind of created her own personality brand um, herself. It would be interesting to see if characters like Fraser Anning and Brian Burston could do that for themselves um, and create their own kind of um, role of um, in within the parliament that people want to vote for again. Now we're moving into our segment in Afghanistan. Zizi, do you want to take us away? Yeah, of course. Um, This week we're talking about alleged allegations of war crimes by Australian soldiers. Um, There's currently an investigation by a New South Wales judge, Paul Breton, um, into the activities of Australian special forces in Afghanistan over the past uh, 17 years, um, from 2001 to 2016. Um, We are hearing some quite concerning stories, um, but just to give you a bit of background... um, there have been allegations of war crimes in Afghanistan and a, and stories of a complete lack of accountability from the military chain of command, um, according to a confidential defence inquiry. Uh, the report revealed that special forces um, have 
potentially committed unsanctioned and illegal applications of violence in operations in Afghanistan and Australian Special Forces showed a disregard for human life and dignity. Uh, this investigation is obviously quite concerning and uh, while is still behind closed doors, will when revealed will show some is predicted to show some very damning stories of Australia's conduct in Afghanistan. Um, there's um, investigations into allegations of unlawful killing and a general disregard for human life. Um, and I guess this week, Australia was quite shocked to see images of um, Australian Defence Force personnel in an armoured tank uh, with a Nazi swastika flag flying above it, which I think is just uh, a representative of kind of the uh, culture that is happening in Afghanistan that is so um, and opposite of what we imagine in Australia. Um, we have also heard stories of an intimidation letter being sent to a witness uh, who was going to talk about alleged illegal killings in Afghanistan. Oscar, do you want to brief us on that? Um, so, yeah, so the letter was sent. It's been labelled as a mafia style. Uh, so there's been inquiries launched. And... Um, and so currently there's and it's quite concerning that this uh, that the that it was found out that this witness was going to testify at the proceedings since these proceedings are supposed to continue in secret with their you know i guess agenda being secret so you know the investigation into this will certainly be yeah so the fact that there is intimidation of witnesses um and uh, allegedly like um, threats of violence against witnesses is very concerning. Obviously, the Australian Federal Police and the Defence Department have declared an investigation, and uh, Defence Minister Maurice Payne has said she is not aware of any similar threats, and she believes it's an isolated incident, but it does kind of uh, speak to the fact that poten potentially uh, witnesses are in danger because of the seriousness of the things that they're discussing, and that um, this inquiry is going to reveal some quite serious things. Um, in our research, we also found that they're taking um, witnesses, they're asking for witnesses in Afghanistan. Uh, there's been advertisements in local papers in the local language diary, so they'll be looking for um, people to come forward and kind of tell their stories um, from there as well. So this is obviously quite a wide-reaching and wide-scope investigation so just in regards to the letter, um, the letter was accused of being uh, mafia-style because uh, it threatened to reveal, uh, you know, negative uh, things about the soldier if it was done. The letter was sent by a, by a quote friend of the regiment. So, um, and which is yeah, concerning. Mm. And I guess um, something we talked about also was the, which kind of shocked and made international news headlines as well as domestic, was the um, Nazi flag on the Defence Force vehicle. What did you guys think about that when you saw it? I think, I don't know, I think in the context of all the other things that were uncovered, I feel like it is one of the milder cases and it's more so, I mean, it's still, of course, problematic in many ways, but I think I was more shocked not not so much shocked actually I'll, I'll expand on that later but more I suppose 
got a more mis- visceral reaction to these sort of like killings and like un- unlawful killings but I don't know I just feel like maybe I feel very desensitized to things like this just because I feel like even in popular media it's always depicted of soldiers doing unethical things when they're deported overseas and it's just very it's so disappointing to hear about it when it is Australia instead of just something that you see in popular media but it's also just I don't know I just feel very conflicted about the whole thing what does anyone else want to share their opinions I agree but I think it's so sad that we have become desensitized to soldiers doing unethical things when they're meant to be the people that we put on the frontier to protect our country and to protect innocent lives and they're always the ones ending up doing like the worst things and I agree that Whilst the Nazi flag is not the worst thing to think about this, the complete disregard for human life is just so appalling. But, like, I'm just kind of confused. Is this... Does that mean, like, the this particular group of troops, they were Nazi supporters, or are they just doing it for show, or um, what is that? So, I mean, there's been various, like, cultural things, but um, according to... Well, according to an anonymous soldier who somehow is involved... Um, it was not that they were legitimate neo-Nazis, but they were doing it as for, you know, other reasons. Yeah, there's been a claim by the Neil James, who's the executive de- director of the Australian Defence Association, who thinks it was more like a joke. So this was obviously oh, for sure. people messing around and acting stupidly. Um However, uh, another an academic from Flinders University, Bed Warnham, has said that as- the Australian Army has previously had to deal with soldiers who are Nazi sympathisers, yeah. uh, which is concerning. But obviously, I think this example is more likely to be a stupid joke that kind of diminishes us in the eyes of the rest of the world. Which is, and I and I realise that this isn't as serious as you know war crimes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but this is a symbol of, I guess, a culture of roguishness and um kind of abandon of you know how Australian soldiers should be acting I mean it's a small visual symbol of maybe perhaps the lack of accountability the kind of disconnect from command centers and the lack of um proper operations that might be happening in Afghanistan for you know a symbol of Nazi Germany to be flying over Australian soldiers command vehicles is symptomatic of something very wrong with the chain of command in my eyes at least um so there was also uh probably there's also the um, more concerningly the uh, reports of unsanctioned violence on three civilians who were killed in 2012 in the afghanistan town of darwan i don't know if i'm pronouncing that correctly uh which has raised a lot of c- concerns uh, you know regarding allegations of unsanctioned violence yeah so are they going to receive any repercussions for their actions or what's going to happen? Um, well, the inquiry is probably... We don't know the scope of the inquiry, I believe, as to the realm of punishments. I think yeah. it's still in a fact-finding mission scope. Uh, the Defence Forces have said that in, in relation to the issue of um, Australians flying flags, the soldiers were punished. However, I don't know if we have stories about... I don't know if we have enough information about these acts of violence against civilians or family members or non-combatants to actually say punishments were allocated at the time. It's likely that um, any infractions of the rules of war will be dealt with in Australia by a military court, 
Um, however, I don't know how that would operate or if there is any scope in this inquiry to recommend that a court be established. Yeah, so I guess it's something that we'll have to read into once the report is published or we, if we have any more leaks or findings that are released. Um, it's obviously quite a complex issue, but if you want to let us know what you think, you can tweet us at, at SinRepresent or you can contact us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash SinRepresent. Um, we're going to go to our uh, much lighter segment now. This is uh, our favourite segment, Head to Head. This week we are going to be talking a little bit about Donald Trump's birthday. He recently celebrated his birthday, I believe, on the 14th of June. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's been interesting, sort of, the responses that he's been getting around the world and um, from his family. Specifically, I believe his wife, Melania Trump, did not spend his birthday um with him um he i I believe this was actually not in direct retaliation but was mentioned um in connection to the fact that he didn't get her a birthday present for her either earlier in april um but however something that might be arguably worse is his son donald jr donald trump jr also saying that he's not getting him anything we've got a clip here to play for you to give you a bit more context on that What's your message for him? Well, hopefully he's watching. I imagine he is. Uh, but uh, happy birthday, Dad. I, I love you very much. Uh, you're getting absolutely no presents because I figured five grandchildren is enough. And when you get the guy, you're good. When you get the most powerful guy in the world, is, yeah. you know, anything's going to be a letdown. So uh, we, we love you, and uh, I look forward to seeing you soon because I don't get to see him that much anymore. That's the Make only problem. Happy. Buy him one of his ties for Oh, poor Donald Trump Jr. <laughs> poor Donald Trump Jr. Poor Donald. <laughs> He's saying he doesn't get to see his dad anymore. I guess if you're the 45th president of the United States, maybe you don't have time for your kids. Oh, that's just sad. Mm. Um, what? what do you guys think? <laughs> I actually saw a really lovely, heartfelt message to the president of the United States from um, uh, the politician Lindsey Graham. Uh, he says, happy birthday, Mr. President. You're keeping your promise to keep and make America safer and more prosperous. But unfortunately for me, you're doing all of this without losing a step in your golf game. I just Aww. like, I mean, it's very silly, but it's just nice little small interactions between politicians that show that there is some level of humanity between them. Yeah. Even mm-hmm. if it is a tweet. <laughs> for Can sure. I, oh, I was just going to say... Um, I know that now Donald Trump is a Gemini and a lot of his character is now explained by the fact that he is a Gemini because I am also a Gemini. I am also a Gemini. You are also a Gemini? I am also Doesn't a Gemini. his character like totally make sense now that you know he's a Gemini? I would rather he wasn't a Gemini with us. Okay, but, <laughs> but I totally understand him now that he is. That's I love I'm how saying. this has just turned into a talk about horoscope. No, because I mentioned that at the... I was thinking about that at the start, so that's why I thought I'd mention that. Something What does a Gemini mean? I'm... I'm do, you, you, horoscope do you want me to actually immune. say that? Yeah, tell okay. me what... So I don't know if you know this, but Gemini is an air sign. So air signs are known for... It's hard to make air signs commit, and they tend to be very, like, quick-witted and... 
And I think Gemini is like the twins, right? The so twins. So they have like they're very like extreme. So they kind of go from one to the other, and <laughs> they have very like fleeting emotions and thoughts, and it's hard to control yeah. them. Well, that is an interesting note to end our talks on. But if you were interested, here's a little bit more information about Gemini. That is all we have time for this week. We'll be back next week, three to four p.m. on Sin Nation and streaming online on sin.org.au. Stay tuned for its literature. Remember, you can catch up on past episodes by. Listening to our podcast on iTunes and Omni, and of course you can send in feedback through Twitter at SinRepresent or on Facebook, Facebook facebook.com forward slash SinRepresent. The show is produced by Zizi Avril and Maggie Liu. I'm Maggie. I'm Zizi. I'm Nikki. And I'm Oscar. And remember to stay political.